Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This is going to be a great show for what was a great week on the ATP Tour. Guest this week, one I've wanted to have on for a while, is Mark Pecci. You've heard his commentary. Australian Open uh, World Feed, uh, Amazon in the uh, in the UK, Tennis Channel in the United States. Prolific. Uh, one of my favorite tennis minds in the world. He was on the call uh, on Tennis Channel for the Rotterdam final, for the Buenos Aires final, and for the Delray Beach final where the champions were as followed. Daniil Medvedev. Um, Carlos Alcaraz and Taylor Fritz. It was a week where I felt that the champions were particularly impressive. And then for Carlos Alcaraz, he comes back. First time we saw him since retiring at the Paris Masters in the quarterfinal against Holger Runa. He had another injury after that, which kept him out of Australia. It was a hamstring strain. Comes back, doesn't miss a beat. Let me start with him uh, because I do want to do some film study with Alcaraz where I'm just like, oh yeah, uh, this is the experience that was so incredible and captivating uh, last year. And there are several times in every single match where Carlos Alcaraz is doing things that nobody else is doing, that nobody else can do. This is the reason why I feel like if you are still making comments that Alcaraz is somehow overhyped, that you need to get your eyes checked. And you can bring me results, and I don't really care. I don't really care. Now, his results are incredible. He just won his seventh title, and he's not even 20 years old. And he's the youngest number one in history, and he already has a slam. So his results are incredible. But even if you give me his results and you say, oh, he's been average since the U.S. Open, which I saw somebody comment a couple weeks ago, or actually just last week, uh, I don't even care about your results because uh, I think you need to get your eyes checked if you are not amazed by Carlos Alcaraz. That is all. Uh, so I want to highlight three moments in this match. Uh, that were that were wow moments to me that stood out to me and uh, that's that's all I'll really have to say about it um, and then we'll talk about it of course with Pechi uh, all this stuff we will so uh, Alcaraz this is on a uh, game point at two one and he brings out this uh, wide service position where he's standing very close to the sideline on the ad side I love this play. I absolutely adore this play. The obvious uh, thing that he's doing right now is giving up the line. So the first instinct is, okay, you hit down the line, and now you have Alcaraz on the run. You have him defending. On a clay court with Alcaraz's speed, I don't think it's a great option. I think it's very difficult because when you go down the line, and first of all, you have to time a heavy kick serve and you have to time that ball to redirect it down the line effectively highest part of the net least court to hit into even if you execute the shot you have the fastest guy in tennis on a slow surface he's probably going to get there and he might hurt you with his cross-court forehand because you don't have as much time to recover to the middle of the court if you are going down the line on the forehand when you're pulled off the court so you better hit it great I don't think it's a great option so Nori uh, first of all, Alcaraz executes this kick serve perfectly. It's short in the box. It's such a sharp angle. This is Nori's contact point. He's, you know, almost into the fence uh, on the sideline. And look look where Alcaraz split steps. I mean, you can't really get it to his backhand here. You basically have no chance of getting it to his backhand. So it's a lose-lose. You can go down the line. You have the problems that I just laid out. You can go cross-court and... 
and you're not even getting it to the guy's backhand. He's probably hitting an inside in forehand, and you're not making him move because look where he's standing. You go, gro you go cross court, and you're hitting it right at him. I think Cam maybe picks the right target here. Let's just go middle. Uh, Nori does hit this very hard, though, and he doesn't get it too deep. And look how easy this is going to be for Alcaraz to hit the winner. He's going to go basically straight through the middle of the court. Uh, a little bit inside in, but not really. It's basically in the middle, and Nori can't even get there. It's a winner. All right? I, I love that play where he's serving from a wide position on the ad side because I just don't think there are a lot of great options. Now let me show you Nori go to another option on return. This time, Cam's going to throw, throw up a, a high ball to try to give himself time to recover back to the middle of the court, which is a, a good play. He's going to go middle again, and Alcaraz goes, oh, you're giving me the high loopy one? Okay, cool. I'll just take it out of the air. And Nori hits a good return here. There's depth on this as well. And Alcaraz goes, cool. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I'll respond, and I'll hit a drive volley. And he hits it unbelievably well. So hard to time. Whips it cross court. Buggy whip follow through, which is interesting, on the drive volley. And uh, now Nori's completely on the run. He can't win this point either. But I saved the best for last. Because while I found those two points pretty interesting with Alcaraz getting creative and doing that that quick damage on the plus one side, I think, it, uh, or on the ad side rather, with the plus one, I think it's so difficult to win points against him on clay when he's serving on the ad side. Uh, but I saved the best for last because ultimately what is so special about Alcaraz first and foremost, above all else, is the foot speed. And this was one of those moments where it was a Carlos Alcaraz moment. Nobody else is doing this. So here it is. Uh, Nori kind of puts Alcaraz in a similar position to uh, the the last two points that I just showed you with Alcaraz serving, where uh, Carlos is pretty far off the court. And he goes cross-court right into Nori's forehand. Cam does everything right here. He moves inside the court to take time away, and he goes down the line with the forehand. And he hits it decently well. Maybe it can be a little bit closer to the sideline. But this is a pretty good shot. Alcaraz is just that fast. And he gets there. And he's got a forehand on the dead run. And uh, Nori's court position is is really uh, not ideal right now when it comes to, to covering any kind of offensive shot. Uh, so, of course, Alcaraz is going to take this hard cross. And Cam's in a ton of trouble. Um, just because he tried to take away time. So that he could probably so that he could finish this forehand down the line for a winner or a forced error or maybe a very weak reply. The trouble is Alcaraz covered it. He just covered it too well. So he was there with the running forehand and now Cam's in trouble. But this is what is so amazing about this point from Alcaraz. Nori's just going to slice this down the line. And I think against 99% of players, he successfully resets the point. All right, slice down the line. And look where Alcaraz is. After hitting the running forehand, he's way off on the deuce side. So you hit this slice down the line, and you're probably giving the right-hander uh, a low, awkward backhand that maybe he needs to slice or maybe he needs to scoop cross-court. Like, if you screenshot it right now, what does it look like Alcaraz has? Certainly a backhand, right? Certainly a backhand. No, not... No, he gets to the forehand? Really? Like, this is crazy compared to, like, off of this shot, off of this running forehand right here. The fact that his next ball is an 
is a forehand, a runaround forehand from the alley. His feet are in the alley. That is crazy stuff. And he forces the error here because his ball is incredibly deep and incredibly hard. So there you have it. Uh, Alcaraz beats Cam Nori in straight sets in the final. 6-3, 7-5. Let's move on quickly to Daniil Medvedev uh, before we get to Pechi. Um, look, there have been a couple of false starts with Medvedev last year. You'll remember if you were watching the channel. A couple of titles that Daniil has won where I've been like, all right, here he comes. He's back. One of them was Los Cabos last year, right before the, the thick of the North American hardcore swing, where Medvedev's been so successful in the last couple of years. He looks good. He wins that. And I'm like, okay, he's back. Here we go. It's his time of year. Wimbledon. Uh, where, which he wasn't allowed to play. That's in the past. The Nadal lost at the Aussie. That's in the past. It's Medvedev's time. And that didn't happen. And then, indoor hardcourt season. Plays Djokovic really well. Comes back. Wins the ATP 500 in Vienna. Looks quite good doing that. All right, indoor hardcourts. He's back. Here we go. This is it. Medvedev's time. Loses to Dimonor at the Paris Masters. Doesn't win a match at the ATP Finals. Nope. It's a, it's a false start. So now we have another Medvedev title. And is it another false start? That's the question that I'll attack. Um, ultimately, I'll get to this. I My position completely unchanged. This is unsurprising probably to anybody who listens to me on a regular basis. My position is unchanged uh, because one week is not enough to really change a position with me. It normally takes some more time. And this is one of those cases. I don't think Medvedev is a, a number one in the world again. I also think he's solidly and easily a top eight player. I, I find him to be underranked at this time. And uh, he is now back in the top 10. He is number eight uh, in the live rankings. I still kind of like where I had him before the year, finishing. Um, wait, what did I have? I forget. Did I have him at five? Something around that. I still feel pretty good about that. Anyway, I am going to present some arguments why this was the one. Why this was the actual non-false start, Medvedev goes back to being Medvedev. Here are the arguments. First of all, the score lines were incredible this week. They were very vintage. I've seen this so many times, especially 2019, 2020. I used to see this all the time. It's one thing staying with Medvedev for the first set. It's a totally, it's a totally different animal staying with him for the second set and the third set. Or if it's best of five, you can go even further than that. And two players did stick with him for the first set. Sinner did in the final. And uh, Davidovich Vakina did in the first round. Nobody stuck with him after that. And you look at a, a Botik Vanda Zanskult result, 6-2, 6-2. Against Felix, 6-2, 6-4. Against Dimitrov, 6-1, 6-2. Medvedev, I think, is very Sviantek-like. Not quite to that level. Men's tennis, a little bit harder, more serve dominant. But a little bit the Sviantek uh, kind of thing where I do think he is very, very good at beating the brakes off of his opponents, dominating his opponents, especially after the first set because he wears you down physically. From the back of the court, he doesn't miss. He makes all of his returns. He did that this week. And and he defends and covers the court. It's exhausting. And that's what you saw this week. Everybody faded. He dominated everybody. And we've seen that movie before. Next thing. He beat a top 10 player, finally. 
Uh, it was about 13 months since he had done that. Uh, the center win is not technically a top 10 win, but I think most of us can agree center's a top 10 guy in terms of level. So Medvedev was on a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 match losing streak against top 10 players. A lot of those matches were really close, just didn't go his way in the end. Uh, but he breaks that against Felix Auger-Aliassime. So, all right, th there's a kind of a check mark that wasn't true about his title in Cabos. That wasn't true about his title in Vienna. Beat a top 10 player. The other thing is that I thought he was much more composed in this match, meaning he did not get frustrated when things didn't go his way. And I think he willed himself to making some adjustments, finding more baseline offense, instead of getting negative and changing nothing. And let's be honest, we have seen in the past that there have been times where things have gone wrong for Medvedev. And instead of looking for a solution, he has completely shut down and, for lack of a, a better term, been a little bit pouty about the things happening on the court instead of staying in the in the proper headspace that's going to give him the best chance to win the match. So I thought this was good for him mentally. Lastly, from the baseline, great from all three phases. The defense was immaculate. Uh, 14 of 95. That was Sinner's unreturned serves. That's around 15%. So Sinner barely got any free points. If you look at the third set, um, the... Medvedev's first break of serve. There were ultimately two. Sinner pulled three balls wide of the sideline from attacking positions in a row. In a row. They weren't long. They weren't in the net. They were wide. Three times in a row from attacking positions. If that is not a sign that somebody's speed and defense is in your head, then I don't know what is. Very few neutral misses from Medvedev. That needs to be the case with him. He cannot miss from neutral in order to be successful. And you look at the unforced error count. Tennis TV had it 48 for Sinner, 34 for Medvedev. Infosys had it 30 for Sinner, 17 for Medvedev. Either way, 6 to 8% better for Medvedev compared to Sinner in the unforced error department. That is how this head-to-head -head should go and needs to go for Medvedev to win it. But uh, maybe even more important than all of that, the attack, the third phase, hit defense, hit neutral. What about attack? Too often, Medvedev has just felt very, very unthreatening from behind the baseline. And particularly on the backhand wing in this match, particularly in the second and the third set, that was not the case. He was generating offense off the ground from the back of the court. Let's get to Mark Petchy. We're joined for the first time by Mark Pecci, a man who has done big things in this sport as a player, as a coach, as a commentator. I've been listening to him the last two weeks, as have many of you in the United States on Tennis Channel, uh, for all the action. And uh, that has been a delight. It makes me even more appreciative that after working so hard, you are still uh, here coming on instead of walking down Marina Del Rey and, and taking in the, the beautiful sights. Thank you. Yo, thanks for having me on. I uh, actually listen to your podcast a lot, actually, to be honest. You did a great one recently with Mike Cation and uh, a lot of great information. So always happy to come and uh, come and chat tennis. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, you had high praise for that Rotterdam <laughs> final. So let's start there. Why was that maybe a more enjoyable match than the scoreline suggests it should have been? 6-2, 6-2 in the last two sets, but uh, it, it felt like more than that 
yeah, I mean, I, look, I mean, you can always just look at results and you can look at wins, you can look at scores and everything else. But, you know, I'm, I'm very big on tennis as a product. And in terms of, you know, how do we how do we make tennis better? How can we take some of the dead air out of it? Um, how can we improve it to, to make sure that we're pulling in the younger generation? That obviously, we're struggling to kind of, um, it, you know, to, to do, to be honest, in tennis. And I watched two finals yesterday, you know, that, that for me, I never felt like for one second there was dead air in the match. I never felt like for one second that I wasn't enjoying this moment. Um, and, you know, two and a half hours of Daniel against Yannick and I was just like, this is, this is sensational. Um, I know Yannick obviously lost the last couple of sets, only pick it, but, but it felt one or two points could have just changed it. They could have been the pivot point that got him back into it. Um, but I love watching Daniel play and I love watching Yannick play um, because they're very different in terms of how they go about it. And there was just something about the contrast in that match that, that made it uh, a sensational. And of course, Sebi Corder against Daniel, uh, against, against Novak, of course, was, was brilliant in Adelaide. But it was a bit quicker, the conditions. And I just kind of felt yesterday's final was, for me, the best that I've seen so far this year. Yeah, and I, I really don't disagree. I thought the level was sky high and the points were were super interesting to watch and uh, and the pace of it was was excellent as well. What do you feel swung in that match from set number one, which was a, a 7-5 victory for Yannick Sinner to 2-3, uh, and three, which was 6-2, 6-2, as I mentioned, uh, for Daniil Medvedev? What were the major things that changed uh, from your perspective? I, I mean, I felt like at times in tennis as well, with the, when it comes to the data, we look at the overall set and we look at the back end of the set and we look at it always sort of um, in the rearview mirror. And sometimes it can be a bit misleading. Daniel didn't serve great at the start of the first set. By the end of the opening set, it actually served pretty well. But he didn't. And, and Yannick took kind of uh, advantage of that. And there was just a little bit more. Um, it, it was a bit more erratic from Daniel, I felt, at the start of the match. What, what I feel about tennis at times is is not, you know, we love to live in a binary world where, you know, the reason that it changed was because X and the other person couldn't do Y. It's so much more subtle than that. Um, and, you know, and, and for, for Daniel, I felt as though he was, he was much, he was a little bit more aggressive, particularly off the backhand side. I felt as though he was able to kind of get into Yannick's backhand with a little bit more pace as the match went on. And it forced Yannick to kind of have to be a bit more aggressive than he wanted to be. And I thought he had control of the points in the opening set. There wasn't as much on the ball. There were some longer rallies, which Yannick won the majority of the nine plus shot rallies in that opening set. But as it went forward, actually, Daniel tried to keep it a bit shorter, not by coming in, because, again, we always want to go to like he took his time away and Daniel got up on the baseline. No, he just managed to get a little bit more on the ball. Um, and it just forced Yannick and he made the points physical. We saw a couple of times in the back end of that sort of third set, Yannick doubled over indoors, um, mm. feeling it a bit physically. That will be some great data for him to take away to get out there on the training ground um, and do that kind of physical exertion that he needs to do um, to make sure that he doesn't feel that way at the end of a point against Daniel. Yeah, there were some some shot tolerance victories on the Medvedev side of 100%. things. You know, he, he can toggle between making every ball and playing safe and playing kind of central and a little off pace. And then he can say, okay, you've got me in that. Or, you know, in the first set, Yannick was faring very well in those long rallies. All right, I'll just do more. And and you're right. He was putting more on the back end and being more aggressive. And I feel I've seen that before for Medvedev in matches, particularly playing safer in the first set and then perhaps ramping it up as the match goes on. 
listen, I think he's probably the most intelligent player on the tour. And everyone's going to say to me, oh, you know, why do you, why do you say that? Well, the reality is why I'm saying that is, is because actually his shots, if you look at them, A, technically, are not going to be something that you're going to see ever again. And B, because the pace isn't right at the top end of an Alcaraz. So therefore, he has to think about what he's doing with his shots far more. And he doesn't have the luxury of great pace, uh, spin on the ball as well. So therefore, if you don't have all of those assets at your disposal at any given time in a tennis match, you have to be incredibly smart in how you hit the ball and where you hit the ball and how you hit it into which location, because otherwise you set yourself up to being attacked. And that's why I love watching him play, because he has this uh, genius ability to be able to protect himself out there. Especially when he's calm. And that was one thing that I know that you pointed out on the broadcast and what was apparent in this match, that there was no moment of of panic or extreme negativity where Medvedev can kind of go into a, a bit of a shell. And I just think think a little bit less effectively than he has the ability to do. That must be one of the... Well, it's one of the easiest matches that Gilles has ever ever sat through <laughs> in terms of being under pressure from the from the opening set to the end. I agree with you. I thought that looked like US Open mentality. Not the first year where he obviously was playing the villain beautifully, um, but the second one, obviously, when he won it. It was mentally, I thought that was one of the strongest performances I've seen from Daniel in an awfully long time. I want to throw some stats at you. And yep. the the... Listeners haven't heard this um, either, so they'll be reacting with you. Uh, the first one is Medvedev ground strokes in the match, backhands to forehands. Medvedev hit 335 backhands. He hit 160 forehands for the match. Yeah, I mean, he's, as I said, I said in commentary, and I've said it about Daniel many times, so uh, sorry for repeating myself. It was always going to take a unique style of player, a different prototype to come out of, uh, you know, the, 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 the training grounds to be able to take over the dom to take away some of the dominance of the big four. Because what we'd seen before is great tennis players. And we've seen a lot of great tennis players, but head was the big four. They could do nothing about it. They couldn't, they couldn't break through. So it had to take this unique prototype of a tennis player. And that is exactly what Daniel is. And as you say, loves to hit more backhands. And, and obviously there, there was, I, I didn't do actually see this data from last year, but in 2021, he was one of just the four players that hit more backhands than forehands on the tour. Novak was another one. And again, we talk a lot about, look, the forehands are always going to be more productive. And it is with Daniel, even when you go back and look at the winners to one, uh, winners off the forehand to backhand, it was still going to be the forehand over the course of the week that does the damage for, for Daniel. But he is one of those players like Novak, like Dan Evans does it. Taylor often is hitting uh, Fritz, who obviously won in Delray, hits more backhands than forehands in general. But obviously they've been trying to work on getting more finishing balls through the court from Taylor when it's going to sit there because the forehand is ultimately the shot that's going to win you those tennis matches. But he doesn't outposition himself, Skill. And that's the most important point to take out of why he hits more backhands to forehands. If you're hitting predominantly more forehands than backhands, you better hit them like Carlos Alcaraz. Because if you're that far out of position, you better hit it well because otherwise you're just leaving so much court open. Yeah. Uh, now, what about from a center perspective, though? If you want misses from Daniil... You probably don't want to let him settle into that backhand as much. Do you have any problem? Because for most right-handers, let me be clear about this. For most right-handers, that's an amazing stat for Yannick. You you made yeah. the guy hit 
75% backhands. That's a great stat for Sinner. I think against Medvedev, it, it's one where I kind of question if if too many balls were going that uh, to that wing. I think that's a, I think it's a very fair point. And I think one of the shots that the, the majority of tennis players haven't taken away from the big four and, and used it and, and developed it as well as I would have expected is the slice backhand. And I think that's the shot. When I look at the big four, what have they improved over the years? Everything. They've improved everything to, to a certain degree. But the one shot that I think has stood out more than even the volleys has been the slice backhand. Novak's has got better. Rafa's got better. Roger naturally had a great slice backhand. And he actually had a great slice backhand, but he uses it obviously incredibly uh, effectively and intelligently. And that was the one shot yesterday, really, if we're being honest. Yannick doesn't really have a great slice backhand uh, down the line, and he doesn't have a great offensive slice backhand. It, everyone has a decent sort of like get the chisel the ball back in a court, but how many of them have a great slice backhand that actually sets the point up to your advantage because you nail it down the line and knife it? And with Daniel's lack of spin on that forehand side uh, for the majority of the time, you know that can that can elicit a short ball back that Yannick can then hit that beautiful forehand down the line. That's the shot that I think he needs to get back into the lab and actually go back and work on it and, and find it for his matches against Medvedev in the future. Because OJ, as Ali Asim, doesn't have a great slice backhand either. Offensively, you know, he, he'll hit it, but it's not a shot that he uses, you know, to direct traffic quickly into Daniel's forehand to then be able to get the forehand cross court back into play. And that's why he also has a 5-0 and record against Medvedev down. Yeah, it's a it's a good play against Medvedev as well. I, I think Nadal has used it really well as a lefty hitting the slice down the line to set up the the forehand. Uh, that's been a good. And also bring him in on your terms. Bring him in yeah. on your terms. Once he's got the psychological advantage in those rallies, which he he gained by just being a little bit more, uh, you know, a little have a little more pace on that backhand. And when he hits it a bit harder, obviously the penetration stays lower when he's kind of not hitting it quite as well, it sits up a bit more. So it was staying lower as the match got on, which is the perfect time to have a great slice to go down the line to change up the pattern of those rallies because Yannick's was getting shrunk the size of court that he could hit it into because he was trying to find that backhand even more and more. And eventually, how many did he tug out wide into the doubles alley on Medvedev's backhand side because he didn't have as much court to go to because he couldn't outmaneuver him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh Next stat, I have three in total. So first, okay. Medvedev hitting way more backhands. The next one is uh, net points one for Sinner. But, uh, you know, you and I uh, are very intricate about how we use our tennis statistics. So I turned it into a rate. There were obviously more points played in the first set than in, in, in the second and the third. Yep. So here yep. is his net rush rate. Uh, 21% of total points uh, Sinner was at net in the first set. 16% yep. in the in the second set and 10% in the third set. So Yannick's ability to come forward uh, decreased every single set of the way. Yeah, and I think you've got to sort of A, put a lot of uh, credit to Daniel, the way that he played. I think that he found a, a pattern of play through the court with some with better depth that, that sort of he, he didn't try and do too much. And I think that Yannick... Um, was and, and and throughout the tournament, I actually went to look at his net points one prior to the final, and he was 38 1 out of 43. Um, he's actually finishing very nicely out there. And if you've got a stat that's that heavily in your favor, you want to try and get back up there. Um, and I think he found it much harder as the match went on because of the quality of Medvedev's play. And Gil, again, that's the beauty of this sport 
you can have a strategy that you want to employ, but your opponent has the ability down the other end to stop you from doing that. And therefore, you have to give them a little bit of credit. It wasn't that I don't think Yannick wanted to get into the net. I think he found it harder. And as, as physically, he tailed off a little bit in that third set. You need great energy to use your feet to be able to, to capitalize on anything short. And there weren't as many short balls to get yourself up into the net. So I think that that was, that was a big, big play for Yannick. And I think that is going to be a big and successful play for him going forward. But little tip of the hat to Daniel for keeping him away from the net as well. Yeah, it's one of the things he emphasized when he talked about his offseason and what he worked on is that he wanted to, to finish uh, more points at net. Good to hear that that stat for the, the tournament coming into the final. Uh, I didn't know yeah. that. That's excellent. Uh, but yeah, he, he certainly wasn't finding a way to really jump on, on every opportunity to come forward as the match progressed. Uh, which which has been so effective. I think Tsitsipas against Medvedev has started to play better in that head-to-head largely because he's getting to net right away yeah. and to avoid those, those physical rallies. Um, here is my last one. Serving on the deuce side. Uh, yeah. Sinner goes 50% T, 44% wide. Huh. Yeah, Jimmy and I were talking about it. Obviously, I was commentating with Jimmy Harris yesterday and you know, obviously, when we've watched a lot of tennis and it's, hey, boy, boy, is it easy in the commentary box to kind of come up with a strategy that you believe is going to work until you actually get out there. And I have to say that I asked Andy that one year after he lost to uh, Rafa at the US Open. And I said, hey, why, why didn't you serve a little volley a little bit more? And he says, he, he says, because it sure looks a lot easier where you are than where I am. And I was like, <laughs> it's a fair point. You know, but having said that, when you look at the way that Novak reevaluated what happened in New York and take away uh, the way the fact that he was playing for the calendar Grand Slam at that particular stage and the emotions that clearly we could see that were affecting him in that final against Daniel when he went and played him in the Paris Masters 1000. I mean, you go back and look at that match and see how often he served and volleyed on the juice side out wide to Daniel. And we were saying it in comms, I don't think through the middle against Daniel is the right serve on the juice side. I, I just don't. I think you want to get him off the court with a slow serve. I, I felt he served way too many 175, 180 plus first serves when he went out wide as well. And because he doesn't have a great cut on the serve, it always naturally for Yannick goes deeper in the service box and therefore gets to Daniel pretty quickly compared to a 160 for K first serve that's going to cut and die because Daniel's so far back in front of him, which is going to buy you more time to get to the net. And even if you do decide to stay back with Yannick's pace off the ground off both wings, he can get him on the run straight away. Or hopefully if he's got him that far out and Daniel's having to work so hard and fast to get back to the middle, he can go back in behind him as well. And he can use that play with the person. I did think that the direction of serve on the juice side was wrong for Yannick. It's not often that I would ever kind of criticize, especially with the brains trust that he has in his box. Uh, whether that's partly because he prefers that serve and he doesn't enjoy it, he doesn't feel as though he hits the other cutter as well, that could also be a part of the reason that he didn't do it. But if that is the case, he's going to need to find that serve back in the lab. All of these things together, Petch, it, it made me, just studying the match, it it, it brought me to the conclusion that uh, Sinner played his A-plus game you know, he played a great level, but it was just his game. 
You know, he he didn't. We've seen some players become very malleable against Medvedev and kind of admit, okay, you're a different opponent. I am going to play different. I am going to leave my comfort zone. I felt Sinner played great, but he just played like Sinner, and and there could have been some adjustments made for his opponent. Listen, I think that's fair, and I think it's also fair to say that Yannick is still 21, and you know, a lot of the time, you know, everyone again looks in the rearview mirror. When I was with Andy and he broke the top hundred in in Bangkok, um, you know, the first thing he did when he got off the court for that was like call his mom and say, you know, I've done it. And it's not, you know, they don't always feel these players that they were destined for the greatness that actually gets bestowed upon them. Eventually they kind of just want to make a living and they kind of just believe that they're good enough to do it, but they don't have, you know, they don't really understand that they're going to be a, you know, multiple Grand Slam winner. They know that they've got the DNA potential to win slams, but they don't totally, you know, know until they've obviously absolutely done it. And I think that that's the case for Yannick. You know, he's been through a big change when he obviously um, offloaded Ricardo Piatti. That would seems to be, you know, a decision that he felt he needed to make. And if you look at Yannick's performances, I think he's on the right track. I think we all believe that he's got a great team around him and I think he's going to be there. But he's still super young. And I agree, in a big final like that, you are going to revert to the tendencies that you feel more comfortable in doing. Um, and I think that's why I said that losses are always more revealing than, than wins. And for him, that is a great loss at this stage of the season. It is going to teach him that, yes, his tennis does very well for a set, but it probably doesn't win him in a best of five against somebody like that who has that unique style of play. And so what is it that I have to find in my game that's going to upset his rhythm in the same way that he upset my rhythm? Yeah, really well said for Sinner. Uh, it's been back-to-back -back finals uh, indoors. There, there were some health issues uh, in Australia that, that we think will shore up. But he's, he's had such an incredible project, uh, trajectory, I should say, uh, for his career and uh, really looking forward to what he does this year. I think most people feel like he's underranked right now, that he's better 100%. than his ranking says. I'd be shocked if he's not top five by the end of the year. I mean, I'd be, I, I mean, you know, shocked. I mean, it, you know, it depends how the year goes, depends how everyone plays, but I'd be amazed if he's not in that zip code by the end of the year and he stays healthy, obviously. Yeah. I'm pretty much in the same place uh, right there with you. How about Medvedev? Just big picture. I'm curious. Uh, I think my, my viewers are well aware of all the storylines that came with last year, the the heartbreaking loss to Nadal, the hernia in March, not being able to play Wimbledon, uh, just this this avalanche of inconveniences uh, for, for, for Medvedev. But it, it, it has taken longer for him to just get back to the results that we saw in 2020 and, uh, and 2021 uh, than, I, than personally I anticipated. Um, do you feel like there are a lot of like what's your temperature right now with with Medvedev? Do you feel that that this is a title that is going to lead to kind of a return to old ways for Daniil? One thing you forgot there, of course, his daughter was born in October, Elisa. Yes. So I I think that's a pretty life changing moment for any person, and I think that that may well be when he looks back um, in the next sort of six months, something that's calmed him down. I think that that may be the thing that ultimately, you know, you know, suddenly becoming a parent is, is a significant seismic shift in your life. And, and, and for the most part, for the better, apart from the lack of sleep and everything else, but an entirely different perspective um, on the things when you're just on your own or you're with your wife or girlfriend, and it's just about you and it's just us against the world and you're riding free in the wind. It's like, 
things can things can get unshackled um but suddenly you've got you know you've got a child and i think that you know it suddenly brings a lot of other stuff in your life into focus about what it what is meaningful and what doesn't need to matter as much and i think that for daniel that could be something for somebody is as highly intelligent um and emotional as he is i think that that could be something that is a huge huge plus in the course of his career you can't always turn it around straight away but i do think that as you said there was an avalanche of stuff that went on um for him throughout the course of uh, last year and i think the reality is is that he's just too good he is just too good not to be back challenging for big titles where it happens it's tough for him over the next couple of majors he's not been as good on the natural surfaces yet uh, he's obviously made a quarter of a french and i do think that with an, with with the right sort of application to, in his own mind that he can be dangerous on that surface and on grass so you know, I, he'll be challenging for titles again. I think he had a really, really tough year and, and everyone gets tough years and, they, and then they show their metal and he certainly showed it at Rotterdam. Indeed. Uh, he, he talked about his, uh, his daughter after the win in the trophy ceremony. So yeah. it's, it's clearly top of mind. It's, it's a big deal uh, as, yeah. as it is for anyone in his life. Let's go to Buenos Aires where uh, the story coming into the week was the return of Carlos Alcaraz to the tour for the first time since Paris Masters Am I allowed to have coffee year? on your podcast? Of Am course. I to have coffee? Hello. Uh, that would be very... <laughs> oh, okay, uh, there you go. Yeah, that, uh, that, cheers. It would be uh, <laughs> uh, hypocritical if uh, you weren't allowed. Uh, you know, he had one of the most remarkable off-seasons, maybe of all time, in yep. from going from 2021 to 2022, where it was like, whoa, this guy is right away probably the best athlete on tour, just physically, uh, right away. And uh, that's why, you know, just knowing his work ethic and knowing the team he has around him, I was so excited, and I am so excited, uh, to see uh, what the main points of emphasis are at this point. I don't think it's the weight room anymore. I think they're happy with where he's at uh, physically. The question is, you know, coming to this year, okay, what's the next frontier for a guy who's already basically on the top of the world? Um, what did you see this week? I mean, I keep having to kind of catch myself when I watch Carlos play um, because obviously we've just been through, you know, the golden generation of four players. Um, and it's very hard to believe we've now found another generational talent off the back of four of the greatest players and include Stan in that obviously as well five of the great you know the, the era that we've had has just been extraordinary and to suddenly feel like wow we have just transferred into another era where we at least have this generational ch talent that has come through already at the age of 19 is that seems to have a thread from Rafa to, to Novak to Roger. And he's here and he's ready. And not only is he ready, he also won the US Open, spending more time on court than anyone's ever done on the men's side in the US Open. So not only is he an incredible talent and shot maker, but he's also got the physicality to be able to win these majors if he has to go three, five setters back to back to back. And it's like, that's not possible. How's that happened? It, it, you know, we, we've, just, we've just said goodbye to Roger in the most dramatic fashion and emotional fashion at the Labour Cup. And we've now got this guy. And yet, I can't help when I'm watching him 
think it's real. This, this, is, this is a player that can carry the tour on his own for 20 years because I literally haven't seen anyone come out this young and hit winners and, and play as fast and be as all core at 19 years of age. And I'm like, as much as I can't believe it's happened, I think it has happened. I agree. Uh, I started uh, my opening uh, monologue for, for the podcast. It's just three moments that I couldn't believe, you know, where he does and he does this stuff every match where you'll watch the point And the first thing is nobody does that. Nobody does yep. that. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm with you. It, it was special to, to watch him. Great to watch him again. Um, and uh, his, his opponent in the final cam Nori, uh, who, who as a uh, as a fellow Brit, I, I know you've been following very closely for a long time. He amazes me because, yeah. you know, the expectations weren't that high for him on tour coming out of TCU relatively. And he he rises up and rises up, rises up. And it, it's tempting to continue to expect that, okay, at some point he's going to stop getting better. And I think once again this year, he's gotten better. Uh, yeah. You know, you have two finals, you have United Cup, where you have two great wins, two top 10 wins at the United Cup. And uh, for me, it's the forehand down the line and that shot becoming a, a potent weapon that I think has opened up his entire baseline game. Yeah, I can't, I can't I'm not going to disagree with you. I think absolutely. I think where, you know, Cam's work ethic is legendary. Um, he's, he's fortunate genetically that he does have a huge pair of lungs and he is able to run and run and run and run and run. Um, so he can beat you both ways. He can beat you with his feet when he doesn't have the game um, and he will happily do that. And that's his kind of default setting. But he realizes that he can't beat the best players in the world just by running. They're going to take the racket out of his hand. So he's worked extremely hard on having a better serve. Um, he's got better accuracy. It, it doesn't always show up in the numbers. Again, I'm like you, I love the data. But, you know, I went back and had a look at what, what you know, what has really helped Cam. And there's nothing that just leaps out at you and goes, wow, like he's got an extra 10 miles an hour on his serve or he's got this. But he's got better accuracy, but he's just got better understanding how to play the points behind his serve. And therefore, he's had to face 50% less break points in each set that he's played. You know, so that obviously takes away from the pressure that he's feeling consistently underserved, which he was feeling prior to the 2021 season. So it's not some magical kind of thing that it's changed everything and people can counter it. It's just a greater understanding of what he does on the court well. Um, and and a, a more consistent ball toss has helped his serve, obviously. But the forehand down the line has been very important, as is his core position on his backhand. You could see yesterday how he tries to get inside. The great limiter for Cam is also his great disruptor, which is his backhand. His forehand he can work with and he's got the spin. He can access short angles. He can go line quite fast, as we saw against Carlos yesterday. But his backhand, which is a great disruptor, which makes people play badly, is also the shot that obviously hurts him because he cannot be a dual attack player with it. He has to use his feet to get inside the baseline to be able to redirect. But it doesn't have the pure pace that other shots have that can just literally take the racket. That's where Carlos obviously has a huge advantage over everybody else in terms of that and the other players like Yannick that can hurt you off both wings. Cam doesn't have that. And the net game is getting better, but it it, it needs more polish. You know, he needs to be more, he needs to be feared up there. And at the moment, I don't get that sense. I'm glad you mentioned the backhand and we can end on this because uh, I thought that was, that was a problem in this matchup on this court where, 
Uh, I'm I'm a big Nori backhand defender. Some people yeah. see it and they say, oh, it's bad. And I, I tell any, anybody who says that, no, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's actually a, a pain in the ass to deal with. Um, in this matchup on the high bouncing clay with how Alcaraz moves inside the court and hits his high RPM forehand, I, I felt it, it just it was not going to work. And that's why I said it's the limiter. You know, it's yeah. it, it, it's a it's a gnarly shot, and it and it's caused Rafa a lot of problems. Actually, I know Cam obviously finally got the win against him in the United Cup, and you can obviously, if you're a Rafa fan, you're going to say that he was still sort of struggling and a little. But you know, it, it it's a shot that's caused Rafa an awful lot of problems over the years in terms of trying to feel his backhand. It stays low. It's skiddy. It, it's it's unpleasant to play against. Um, but you're right against certain styles of player who can hit high revs, which Carlos can. Um, and also on the backhand, he can, if, if Cam goes line with not huge base, he can tug him on the three-quarter out wide and Cam's on the run on the forehand side. Suddenly Cam has an awful lot more baseline to cover against Carlos than he does against other players when he hits that backhand because of what he's opponent. But again, I go back to, that's what the beauty of this sport is all about. You have a different type of artist down the other end that can look down the other side and see a rectangle and pull it across on the angles and 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 that's where Cam's backhand unfortunately is is going to limit him on a on Carlos's bad days Cam's not going to miss that backhand and Carlos could beat he could beat himself but on a on a day where Alcaraz is really feeling it it's going to be really tricky for Cam to get those wins Petch it's been an absolute pleasure uh and a, and a long time coming really enjoy um, anytime you know you know where I am and you got all my details and I'm happy to come on and, and chat tennis